Hello, and welcome back to Cinema Sunday. I am your host, Candy Thomas, and each week I'm going to watch one of the 94 movies that have won an Oscar for Best Picture and tell you exactly what I think of them. I'll follow the same template every week. It's the basic details of the movie, things like who's in it, what's it all about, and I'll answer three important questions. One, does it stand the test of time? Two, is it Oscar worthy? And three, should you watch it? Or would cleaning your gutters be a better way to spend your afternoon? As a friendly reminder, along with my honest assessment of these movies, you're also going to get my hot takes on many current events. I talk a lot about the things that really piss me off. And I'm also going to mix this with a heaping dose of adult language. So please be sure you listen with caution. I would like to thank the good folks at Wikipedia and IMDb, as they are great sources of information for all things movie and Oscar related. And with that, let's take it away. This week's Oscar-winning film is Spotlight. It was released November 6th of 2015. It's directed by Tom McCarthy. It stars Mark Ruffalo, Michael Keaton, Rachel McAdams, and Brian Darcy, along with a really impressive supporting cast, which includes Liev Schreiber, Stanley Tucci, John Slattery, and Billy Crudup, among several others. It was nominated for a total of six Oscars, and it won two. It won for Best Picture and Best Original Screenplay. If you want to watch it, it can be found on HBO Max and Paramount Plus streaming services if you have a subscription. Or you can watch it on Amazon, Vudu, Redbox, and Apple TV for $3.99. Before I dive into this, I want to warn you that I will be discussing the sexual abuse of children, a lot of children, over many years, decades even, and the coordinated effort to cover up the abuse to protect the perpetrators. I understand these conversations can be quite triggering, so please listen with caution. Stay tuned at the end of the episode. I'll provide support information for those needing assistance. So what is it about? Well, I've already given it away, but IMDB describes it as very simply as this. It's the true story of how the Boston Globe uncovered the massive scandal of the child molestation and cover-up within the local Catholic archdiocese, shaking the entire Catholic Church to its core. This is true. That is exactly what this movie is about. But that description doesn't do it any justice. There are many more significant elements to Spotlight that I want to share with you today. My version is a lot more detailed, so stick with me. My hope is that I'm able to give props to those who deserve it the most. For starters, the movie's title, Spotlight, is named after the oldest continuously operating newspaper investigative journalist unit in the United States. The Spotlight team, created in 1970, has always been allowed to operate in a silo to control the secrecy of their stories and protect their sources. The movie shows us real events as experienced by real people. Although there's a little bit of Hollywood liberty taken, it sticks pretty damn close to what actually happened. It opens with a flashback to 1976. There's a priest named Father John Gagan who's just been arrested for child molestation. We would all assume that the charges will be filed and justice will be done. But a high-ranking cleric and an assistant DA are present and the policemen are told to keep it quiet. The arrest is never made known to the press 
and Gagan is never charged. He is whisked right out of the police station and back into his neighborhood parish. Fast forward 25 years, it is now 2001. Marty Barron, played by Liev Schreiber, arrives in town from Miami to be the new managing editor of the Boston Globe newspaper. He's making the rounds and getting to know all the editors when he meets Walter Robinson, who goes by Robbie, and oversees the spotlight team. Robbie is played by Michael Keaton, and we find out pretty quickly that he is the quintessential Boston guy, born and raised, and at one time, a staunch Catholic who even attended the all-boys Catholic school across the street from where the Globe is located. Robbie is well-connected. He knows everybody and seems to be really dialed into the community. They want us to see that Robbie has a lot to lose by exposing the Catholic Church. Marty Baron reads an article about a Boston lawyer named Mitchell Garabedian, played in the film by Stanley Tucci. Garabedian is on record stating that he believes Cardinal Bernard Law, the Archbishop of Boston, knew about Gagan's sexual abuse of children and did nothing about it. Barron, believing there's a really important story here, asks Robbie if the spotlight team will revisit the Gagan accusations. And thus begins the journey of three reporters and their editor in a dogged pursuit of truth and justice for the victims. Journalist Mike Resendez, played by Mark Ruffalo, is dispatched to partner with Mitchell Garabedian. Now, Garabedian has been battling the Catholic Church for years, so safe to say he's He's frightened and even a little paranoid about speaking to a reporter. Frankly, he's in the business of bringing legal consequences to those who abuse and endanger children. So it seems that he's not particularly interested in helping a reporter. It's kind of like my time would be better used actually helping the victims than helping you write a story about them. But when Resendez informs him that it's the spotlight team working on the story, he becomes a little more cooperative. Spotlight has a great reputation for going after tough stories and bringing powerful people to justice. The reporters all take on this assignment, thinking this is a story about one priest, Gagan, who abused a lot of children, yet kept getting moved around to new assignments over the years without any real punishment. And then they begin to pull the thread. It involves a multi-prong approach. They need to fan out and attack it from many different angles and run down potentially hundreds of victims and witnesses, but they must do it all in secrecy so the church doesn't discover what they are up to. They review all the old clippings, searching for stories they wrote about Gagan and another priest from Fall River by the name of James Porter, who was accused of molesting 68 children and was eventually sent to prison. However, the Globe like pretty much every other newspaper in America, did very little to chase down the pedophile priest story, even after the Porter case. It just sort of got swept under the rug. It seems that Boston, the city with the highest percentage of Catholics in America, didn't want to hear there was a problem with their priests. So the press stuck to reporting on the really important things, like the Red Sox. After speaking with victims' advocates and a small group of victims themselves, the team quickly realizes that this is a bit deeper than they believed. They uncover a pattern of sexual abuse by several other priests across Massachusetts and an ongoing cover-up by the Boston Archdiocese. This is shaping up to be a shocking and frankly quite sickening series of events, and it's gone seemingly unreported and unchecked for decades. 
journalist Sasha Pfeiffer, who is played by Rachel McAdams, interviews a number of victims and starts to piece together the evidence that there are multiple priests involved. At this early stage, they think there could be as many as 13. This number feels alarming to them. And you as a viewer, I mean, how have they gotten away with this for so long? They also learn about a group of lawyers, one of them named Eric McLeish, played by Billy Crudup, who have represented a number of victims over the years, including the accusers of Porter. In fairness, there wasn't a lot that the lawyers could do since the statute of limitations had expired, and they all sleep well at night knowing they were able to get the victims a small cash settlement and a sit-down with the bishop. Robbie and Sasha find out that the lawyers were also promised by the church they would take the priests out of circulation. But guess what? (laughs) It didn't happen, and no one ever followed up. Then the team discovers the mother load of evidence that's right downstairs in the Globe's basement. As dumb luck would have it, the Archdiocese puts out an annual directory of every priest and parish. Big books filled with detailed information, hundreds of them, and they date all the way back to the 1980s. It's in these directories they can see how often priests were moved around from parish to parish. This helps them sync the incident dates the victims provided to the times the priests were moved. It's become painfully obvious there's a big goddamn cover-up. The church knew there was a number of priests repeatedly abusing children, yet they were moved around, never being brought to justice. There's no paper trail. Lawyers like McLeish would work directly with the church. Nothing was ever filed in court, and it was all done through private mediation. And this is how it all stayed so quiet. As Sasha states in one scene, The victim has to sign a confidentiality agreement to get the settlement. The lawyer takes a third. The church sweeps it under the rug. She says what we already know. If the lawyers are handling it directly with the church, it all but assures no one will ever find out. It will be allowed to continue forever. Robbie even says at one point that it looks like there's a group of lawyers who are turning child abuse into a cottage industry. But of course, Michael Keaton says it with the perfect Boston accent. He's like, cottage industry. I can't even do it. Cottage industry. Anyway, at this point in the movie, you'll be sick to your stomach. But wait, (laughs) we're only halfway through. The team still thinks there's only 13 priests and they can't quite connect it yet to cardinal law or anyone else in church leadership. They've got a lot more work to do. They have an amazing source by the name of Richard Seitz. He's an actual person. Google him. He's pretty impressive. He was a former priest and a mental health counselor trained specifically to treat Roman Catholic priests. Sype conducted a 25-year study about celibacy and provides the spotlight team with some very disturbing but much-needed statistical data. Robbie asks Sype if, based on his data models, does he feel it really could be as high as 13 priests? And Sype's response is that he believes that number is way off. They do the math and determine the number is actually closer to 90. Cut to Globe editor Ben Bradley Jr. screaming in disbelief, 90 fucking priests in Boston? He goes on to say, if there were 90 of these bastards, people would know. To which Resendez responds, maybe they do. So the team keeps going. They keep pulling at the thread. The Globe sues to get access to church records that have been sealed, and Resendez continues to chip away at Garabedian, hoping to get more information out of him. They are able to cobble together multi-source evidence on as many as 70 priests just in Boston alone, but they can't escape the feeling that cardinal law must have known about it and covered it up. 
Marty Baron feels that is the bigger story. They need to tie it back to the higher levels of the Catholic Church, or it will end up being a story about some bad apples and the church leadership will get away without punishment. He tells them they need to focus on the institution, not the individual priests. Resendez finally gets Garabedian to provide enough breadcrumbs to lead him to some solid evidence against cardinal law. The files they gain access to contain the smoking gun. Letters written by parishioners, concerned parents, and even one from an auxiliary bishop, all begging cardinal law to remove pedophile priests like Gagan. And yet he still did nothing. The cardinal knew and manipulated the system so these priests wouldn't have to face charges. We discover the church knowingly put the same priests back into parishes time and time and time again. It was systemic and it came from the top down. The Spotlight article with the headline, Church Allowed Abuse by Priests for Years, appeared on the front page of the Boston Globe on January 6, 2002. Once the story was published, hundreds of tips continued to pour in, mostly from additional victims. Question one, does Spotlight stand the test of time? Yes, these are not events from long ago. There are still church sex abuse scandals being reported today. That's what makes this movie hard to watch. It's the real-time nature of it, but that's why it's also so important for you to watch it. There are plenty of Oscar-winning films that portray horrible real-life tragedies, like Titanic. Yes, that is a true story. The ship really did sink, many people drowned, and it's a horrible tragedy. But it happened over 100 years ago. So as you're watching Titanic, you're not thinking, Oh, no, I should try to do something. There are probably people I know who were survivors that could use my help. No, you don't feel remorse or a strong emotional connection because it's not something that happened during your lifetime. But this, the ongoing sexual abuse of children at the hands of church leaders, the very men they are taught to trust the most, is still happening today. And I'm not just taking the Catholic Church to the woodshed. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a religion that hasn't had these types of sexual abuse scandals. Whether it's children or adults, it's far more common than many people are willing to admit. When you watch this movie, you may feel like I did. I felt a little bit guilty. I remember seeing these stories on the news, Katie Couric on the Today Show reminding us every day of the horrors being uncovered in Boston. During 2001, the Spotlight team had to postpone their work for almost eight weeks because 9-11 happened. So to be fair, we were at a point in this country where we were hurting, trying to come together as Americans, and many people were turning to faith and strengthening their bond with God. So when the next January rolls around and the story is published, I think many Americans were too emotionally exhausted to give this the attention it needed and deserved, much less willing to criticize the very church leaders they relied on so heavily in their moments of grief. I also feel like today's journalists don't have the same moxie that the Spotlight team had. In today's instant gratification world, they would rather rush to get their story out there first than do deep dive investigative journalism, taking weeks or months to pull a story together. There are some heroes like Julie K. Brown from the Miami Herald who blew open the Jeffrey Epstein story, or Ronan Farrow who took down both Harvey Weinstein and Matt Lauer. But I feel like there's many more of them that just write stories about Here's what Elon Musk tweeted today. And I'm like, dude, I'm on Twitter. I already know what Elon Musk tweeted today. So how about you report actual news instead? 
It's really sad because at this point in history, we really need our press to step up and serve the American public in a truly informative way. But instead, they're talking about the fifth most popular Kardashian and which baby daddy she's vacationing with. It's exhausting. Such a waste of our time. Question two, is it Oscar worthy? Yes, most certainly. Now, this was a really tough year for the best picture category. The other nominees were The Big Short, Bridge of Spies, Brooklyn, The Martian, The Revenant, Room, and Mad Max Fury Road. I've seen all of these with the exception of Brooklyn, and wow, each of them are excellent in their own way. This must have been a nerve-wracking decision for the Academy of Voters because you could make an argument for every single one of these movies. It's not uncommon for Oscar-worthy movies to have big-name stars attached to them, but the star power in this group of nominated movies is unheard of. Christian Bale, Brad Pitt, Ryan Gosling, Steve Carell, Marissa Tomei, Tom Hanks, Alan Alda, Jim Broadbent, Sorce Ronan, Matt Damon, Jessica Chastain, Jeff Daniels, Shuatel Ejiofor, Leonardo DiCaprio, Brie Larson, Charlize Theron, and Tom Hardy was in two of them. Add to that the power-packed cast of Spotlight. Frankly, I think if you were trying to find three guys who were the most consistently great in everything they did, whether it be comedy, drama, romance, superhero movies, playing straight guys, playing gay guys, playing good guys, playing bad guys, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find three people better than Mark Ruffalo, Michael Keaton, and Stanley Tucci. They just bring it every single fucking time. Mark Ruffalo and Rachel McAdams were nominated in the Best Supporting Actor and Actress categories, but neither of them won. These are great performances and some of the best work I think they've ever done. I think it's possibly so much harder to play a real person. If your character is made up, you get to take liberty in how to play them, right? Like maybe she could be afraid of small spaces or maybe he walks with a limp or has a preponderance of ear hair. But when you're playing a real person, especially a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter, you don't want to get it wrong. Mark Ruffalo is always extraordinary. No matter how big or small the role is, he understands the assignment and he never disappoints. Mike Resendez, it seems in real life, is patient yet pushy, kind-hearted, but also a little bit cranky. But more than anything, he's definitely the type of person who deserves to have someone the caliber of Mark Ruffalo play him in a movie. I want to applaud the way McAdams portrayed Sasha Pfeiffer, particularly in the scenes where she's reacting to the victim's stories. So in the movie, it appears that Sasha did a significant amount of heavy lifting. She was the good old-fashioned beat reporter who went door to door to door looking for people to interview, victims, witnesses, anyone who knew anything. There are a couple of pivotal scenes where she is interviewing victims. And keep in mind, these are mostly adult men who haven't ever told anyone what happened to them. And this is South Boston. So these are tough guys. Many of them are from broken homes in the rougher neighborhoods, and they're not prone to showing emotion. Yet here they are breaking down and sobbing right in front of her as they're telling their stories. And as you're watching this, you think you know what's going to happen next. She's going to reach across the table and pat them on the hand or do some other physical act to comfort them. But she can't. She is a reporter, and it's not her job to get emotionally attached. She is simply there to report a story. But Rachel McAdams, with her facial expression, she sits perfectly still but manages to demonstrate the deepest level of sympathy and understanding and kindness and trust 
everything the victims would ever hope for with just the look on her face. She does it so perfectly. And I didn't mention this earlier, but John Slattery, who gets sexier with every new gray hair that pops out of his head, has a small but pivotal role as Globe editor Ben Bradley Jr. If that name sounds familiar, it's because his father, Ben Bradley Sr., was the managing editor for the Washington Post when Woodward and Bernstein broke open the Watergate scandal leading to Nixon's resignation. These Bradleys are some serious newspaper guys. Spotlight won the award for best screenplay, which is well-deserved. It's a difficult topic. And there are several times during the movie where you're going to feel uncomfortable to the point of even being a little sickened. That's what makes it so powerful. Question three, should you watch it? Yes, it's brilliant. And it's really, really important. I know we often like our movies to provide escapism. We want it to be make-believe. And this is kind of like watching a documentary, a really troubling documentary. If nothing else, it makes you well-informed and it sheds light on these terrible things that we should all be more aware of. There's a part in the movie where Garabedian says, if it takes a village to raise a child, well, it also takes a village to abuse a child. And that really sticks with me. It's true. None of this would have been possible if people didn't look the other way. And it's easy to say, well, I'm not Catholic. I don't know anyone from Boston. It doesn't impact me. Why should I care? Well, buckle up, because I'm about to share with you some important data. And you're welcome to bow out at this point, because these things are not going to be easy to hear. So for starters, the Spotlight article was first published in January of 2002. And over the course of that same year, the Spotlight team published close to 600 additional stories about the scandal, based on tips from victims that continued to come in. 249 priests and brothers were publicly accused of sexual abuse within the Boston Archdiocese. The number of survivors in Boston alone is estimated to be well over a thousand. In December of 2002, Cardinal Bernard Law resigned from the Boston Archdiocese. He was reassigned to the Basilica di Santa Maris Maggiore in Rome, one of the highest ranking Roman churches in the world. Yes, you heard that correctly. The son of a bitch got a promotion. But that's not where it ends. We also learn that there have been major abuse scandals uncovered in 102 cities in the United States and 89 cities around the world. And that was five years ago. Lord knows what it is today. Richard Sipe studied 1,500 priests over a 25-year period and concluded less than 50% of Roman Catholic priests in the U.S. even attempt to remain celibate. Now, while most of them are having sex with other adults, current data shows that 4 to 6%, 4 to 6% of all priests act out sexually with minors. In 2021, there were 34,923 priests in the United States. So that could mean that there are nearly 2,000 of them out there that you might not want to trust around your kids. Another frightening side note, currently there are eight states in the United States where there is no statutory minimum age for child marriage. Between 2000 and 2018, there were 300,000 minors legally married in the United States, mostly young girls under the age of 18 who are married to sometimes much older adult males, many of these marriages being part of a religious or cultural tradition. 
As I'm recording this, there are no less than a dozen documentaries exploring the abuse of children at the hands of church leaders. Some of them include Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey, The Sinister Sect, By the Grace of God, Pray, Deliver Us from Evil, Twist of Faith, Code of Silence, and several others. The point being that the movie Spotlight shines, well, a spotlight on an important topic we should all know and care more about. Okay, that's a wrap. I think we all might need a cocktail. Thank you for listening. This has been Episode 7 of Cinema Sunday. I'll be back next week to discuss another Oscar-winning film. If you or someone you know has been a victim of abuse at the hands of a religious leader, there are a couple of websites you can visit for support. Snapnetwork.org. SNAP stands for Survivor's Network for Those Abused by Priests. It is mentioned in the movie. TakingBackOurselves.org, which is also resources for survivors of religious abuse. And please, if you see something, say something. Please tell your friends about this podcast. If you feel so inclined, you can like, follow, subscribe, and even post a review. If you have a comment, maybe I got some facts wrong, or you just want to tell me I have shit taste, you can email cinemasunday at yahoo.com. The music for Cinema Sunday is appropriately titled So Happy. It is by Scott Holmes Music. I got it off of freemusicarchives.org. And the work is licensed under Creative Commons by NC 4.0. Links are provided in the bio. And if you happen to visit the Free Music Archive, they do take donations. So please be generous. Thanks and see you next week.